Because if psychology is able to, or trying to at least get to the truth of who we are, philosophy in a way is getting to the truth of who we are by getting into the truth about what the world is. You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of the good life, living well. Rudy, I keep screaming this out. What see, is it? See, this is where I was. Why are we doing this? Well, uh, okay. This is where I was when you and when you finally came up with our catchphrase, which is excellent, mm-hmm. uh, to learn what we Thank didn't you. know, what we didn't know. But what we're really all about is how to live a better life. And to me, because I've learned so many things from you, knowledge helps you lead a better life. I just want people to know that that's our aim. So if you are a frequent good as in the details listener, you will lead a better life. I'm a lawyer, so I won't guarantee that, but uh, I'll like, <laughs> I'll, I'll half-ass guarantee that uh, under the law. And today, I think listeners will learn about some psychology, about maybe some of their own psychology, about the study of psychology, about my messed up psychology. Would you agree with that one? Yes, this was a great episode. We teamed up with Seize the Moment podcast. We had an opportunity to be on their show. Now we're airing the episode where they were on our podcast. And yes, Leon and Alan, they are both psychologists and they just have some great insight. And in their own podcast, their aim is quite similar to ours in where they want to tackle some seemingly, you know, concepts that just are located in the university setting, but make it accessible to the broader public. And we have a lot of fun talking about the overlap between psychology and philosophy philosophy, what philosophy can learn from psychology, what psychology, when we're talking about some of the concepts, what are some things that can help us understand our own relationships, how to communicate. One of my favorite parts of this was I was wondering what was one of the trends that is happening right now in, let's say, pop psychology, if it's either a good one or something that's driving him bonkers. And he had a pretty good answer for it. The only other thing that I would add. Do you have a favorite moment? (laughs) I do. My favorite moment is when I finally fooled them into classifying me psychologically as a narcissist not I don't actually think I'm a narcissist but prior to the show I was fooling around with one of our guests about maybe doing a sideshow a joke show about where they actually psychoanalyze us and they felt really weird about doing that the entire show I'm trying to back them into a corner in order to give some kind of a diagnosis and yeah it turns out I'm a narcissist and if people really enjoy the show and they enjoy the topics that we talked about they should go check out the seize the moment podcast we are on episode I believe it's number 138 It was from a couple of, it was released on July 24th. So if you really enjoyed what we talked about today, please go check out their show. Yeah. They also had one of our favorite guests on there, Mark D. White, which is really cool. And who we're going to have on in the future again. We are. And we're going to be talking about the philosophy of Thor, more Marvel comics. So please continue to listen. Yeah. So in the previous episode on infrastructure, we learned that I'm a snob. And on this one, you're a narcissist. So see, we are just, you know, unearthing so many things. It's true. You're a snob and I'm a narcissist. That's all. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Okay. And now let's seize the moment. All right. Leon and Alan, welcome to the show. Like I said, I this I don't I almost don't know where to start because I'm so excited. I think maybe one of the things that I would love to know is that um, since on your podcast you do have professional philosophers on your show, your background is in psychology. 
Where do you find the overlap between the two disciplines? What can philosophy teach psychology and what could philosophy learn from psychology? So Alan, what do you want to do? You want to answer it? Yeah, no, you take it. Okay. All right. So um, this is a question, honestly, that I get asked pretty often. And it's like, I really don't think that there's much of a line between the two, because if you kind of think about it, the early philosophy, I'm sorry, the early psychologists were actually philosophers, right? So even though Sigmund Freud was a neurologist, he actually had an extensive background in philosophy. So did obviously Carl Jung. He was kind of like considered to be the founder of the new age movement. Adolf, well, what was his name? Um, not Adolf. Otto Rank, right? He was also, um, oh, yeah. he had a, yeah, an extensive background in philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea is that if you go back in time and you kind of just look at what the ancients had to offer from Stoicism, even to somewhat, to some extent, like Platonist and his idea of like reincarnation. I mean, it's all used to sort of soothe your emotions. So it's sort of used to kind of not necessarily placate you, but put you in a position of power, put you in a position of being able to sort of manage your life, your relationships. It's a way for you to navigate the world and pretty much essentially navigate yourself as well. So it's like if you look at the background again of psychology, I mean, it's very hard to distinguish between that and philosophy. Because if psychology is able to, or trying to at least, get to the truth of who we are, philosophy in a way is getting to the truth of who we are by getting into the truth about what the world is. And I mean, that goes all the way back to Socrates and, you know, him asking a bunch of questions. Most of them were obviously leading. Um, and then but the idea was, you know, it's essentially to get to the truths of who you are. And again, if you think about psychoanalysis, that's pretty much kind of at the forefront of what it was. It was this deeper dive into the big question of like, who am I really? Just to tag that a little bit, I think there's a bit of a, an overlap of critical thinking being very vital to both psychology and philosophy. Essentially, in the realm of psychology, maybe I want to think, you know, why am I thinking these thoughts? Why am I maybe overthinking? Let's say in the context of a relationship, let's say I had just broken up. I cannot stop thinking about this girl. It's, I just cannot control these thoughts. What's going on here? If I had to choose, would I choose to feel this way? Or like, why am I thinking this? Why, why does it feel like these thoughts are sort of coming to me in a sort of a state of automaticity? Is this something that I would choose to feel, right? And then I, I question, you know, if I really took a step back, and I was very analytical about it, would say, well, if, if I didn't choose to think these thoughts, what does it mean that I'm thinking them, right? And maybe start to analyze it from there and then start to say, well, these thoughts, are they even really, are they really my thoughts? Or is this sort of coming from maybe some sort of uh, a feeling of uh, anxiety or a feeling of depression? And maybe that these thoughts or this narrative is sort of coming from that place. But if I maybe knew that maybe I'm having a sort of like a, a chemical reaction within my body, that I'm, I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling neurotic, and that maybe these thoughts that I'm having may not be something that I choose to feel, but are sort of happening, right? And maybe it's something that I can sort of observe. Maybe then I realize that, okay, maybe I don't have to feel so identified with them. And the sort of concept of identity, there's also that overlap in psychology and philosophy as well. If we're in the realm of philosophy, for instance, let's say whenever you, and and it depends what, which, let's say, philosopher we may be talking about, but many of them, let's say we're talking about the concept of ego. And let's say we're, work, we're using this working definition of anytime you identify with a thought or a belief, you're sort of operating from ego. And let's say we know that, you know, uh, if you look up what the ego is, you, you realize that's a sort of a false self, maybe a construct that you believe in that you think is you. But if you know that is not you, and maybe who you are goes beyond that, beyond how you identify, then maybe that's going to 
and not maybe in most, I mean, in my personal case, it's actually sort of created a, a space between me and those thoughts that I was having. And maybe I would feel less depressed, less neurotic, um, maybe realize that, you know, this isn't really me choosing to feel this way. And I, I guess I'll end that. Oh, very stoic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in your answer, something that I had been thinking about as I was looking at your work, Leon, was this, you know, you mentioned the ancient Greeks, and then you went to Freud. And as I was thinking about this episode, it almost seems as though the ancient Greeks, I, I like that they had a better handle on the psyche and understanding things. It's actually part of the reason why this is called good is in the details, because I like the Aristotelian notion of the good life of eudaimonia, activity of the soul. And then in the history of philosophy, there's this skip over in medieval thought, where all thinking was about the divine, it was almost wrong to even focus on yourself. And then psychology psychology gets to be reintroduced. I think with Descartes, he started to focus the question on the human body again and the human being. He didn't do psychology, but it was considered blasphemous at the time in the 1600s to be wanting to analyze the human being. And then from there, I think you have the thinkers like Kierkegaard, who is always stuck with me. One of the lines in one of his works is subjectivity is the case in point and trying to uh, refocus philosophy from not just focusing on universals like the divine or the order or mathematics, but on what it means to exist. And then from there, you have this ripple where people are more interested in psychology and happiness and depression on how we, a death contemplation, how we understand our everyday lives. With that in mind, is there any problem? I want to be careful how I say this. Is there a conflict between religion and psychology in that even with your, let's say with your essay on pride in the Judeo-Christian context, the deadliest of the sins is pride because it breaks the first commandment. You put yourself at the level of God. And in that way, have we kind of run away from what, you know, the benefits of having a sense of pride without breaking that sense of humility toward the divine? Wow. That's a great question. Um, so, and by the way, when you were talking about the medieval times, um, yeah. there's something that came up for me was Boethius actually. So Boethius oh, yeah. is also, yeah, somewhat of a psychologist, because if you think about it, the consolations of philosophy is in some way, uh, you know, like it's what a kind of medieval therapist would console a person who's obviously on, on his way on death row at that time. So it was like a way for, you know, the, whatever was like lady philosophy to console him because essentially it was philosophy. Like there was no psychology at the time. I mean, I guess in terms of just medieval thought, I don't really know too much about it. I'm not like a historian on it whatever. Uh, but I do think Boethius would stand out. And I think some people would even consider him as like one of the kind of original maybe psychologists. Okay. So yeah, that being said, um, so there's definitely, I don't think any specific conflict between religion and psychology in my kind of understanding of it. When I think of pride, I think that a lot of people, especially in religious circles, I think they misunderstand pride just because I think in the religious sphere, there's a black and white view of things, right? So when we think of pride, we either think of like, we, it's a dichotomy. So it's pride as opposed to humility. So it's either you feel really good about yourself and you feel sort of godlike or you feel really depressed and, you know, you sort of feel like you're less than and you're sort of inferior, right? On the whole. That just doesn't make sense to me because if you think about it, I mean, mental health, there's a pretty much a positive correlation between pride and pretty much pride and let's say uh, mood, right? So the happier you are, the more prideful you are. Obviously, you know, at some point there's a reverse correlation because when you're, when you have excessive pride and you become narcissistic, eventually that fuels depression. But I think like when religious circles talk about pride, I think what they actually are referring to is excessive pride. So for the most part, when we think of it in that way, that kind of represents something like bipolar disorder, where you would think of on the one hand, but there's mania, 
And if somebody's in the manic episode, they might think they're the next Messiah or, you know, some sort of savior or whatnot. And then obviously when they're in a depressive episode, that may be what most people in religious circles, I think, would think of humility when they would think, well, this person is super modest. They think they're very lowly. That doesn't make sense to me. So to me, I think of pride in terms of like your actual accomplishments and as opposed to your failures or your weaknesses. So you're looking at it in the context of who you are on the whole. And I don't think that that necessarily conflicts with religion because it's not the same thing as saying that I am or can be godlike. Now, obviously, you have like some new age circles which say, well, you know, you don't have to think of yourself as being godlike, but there's like a path or whatever to it. I mean, that's its whole kind of other issue. But I think secular pride is not that. I don't think you're necessarily saying I want to be like God. Because to be honest with you, God is not really in the picture. You're not thinking of it in any supernatural way. So I can see how if, let's say, I don't know, you're some tribe and, you know, God knows whatever time, whatever period in the world, and, you know, you want to sort of keep everybody together. And you're pretty much saying like, okay, the only way that we could do this is if we know we follow some divine being. Don't ever think that you're above him because if you do or her, I mean, that's obviously possible. Uh, but let's say if you're, if you're above him, you know, we're going to kind of excommunicate you because then all of a sudden, you know, we can't trust you. And obviously in those times when you're pretty much surviving, I could see why that would be an issue, why you would put God on a pedestal and everybody else is sort of like this team. It's sort of like God is the football coach and then you have the team and then you have to follow the coach, you know, to eternity or whatever it is. But no, but I don't think that there's a conflict with pride and religion as it's understood now, at least, you know, my understanding of religion and the way it's taught. Because again, I think it's excessive pride that's the problem, not the pride that I'm thinking of when you're mixing pride and humility together and you have somewhat of an accurate assessment of who you are. Obviously, there's still going to be some bias involved. If you're depressed, I mean, you're going to have more of a negative bias. So that's going to come up from time to time. And obviously, if you're a little bit more narcissistic, you're going to have more of a positive bias. So nobody's going to have a full understanding of who they are. But ideally speaking, that's what I think of when I think of pride. How can somebody get an understanding of where they are So for either somebody with the inflated sense of self or somebody who has a lack of sense of self-worth? Are there some markers that somebody can do to sit back and have a better understanding of where they fall? What are some clues that the world gives us so that we can understand where our pride should fall and where it makes sense? And yeah, and I like it. I'm thinking because you had written that having a sense of pride at our accomplishments actually fuels us to want to do more, which I thought was really cool. So how do we get some sort of a measurement from that? Or of that? Yeah. So I love that question. So sometimes people think of it as in terms of um, like they sort of want to disconnect themselves from society. So obviously in America, rugged individualism is super popular. So there's uh, this idea that sometimes people have, again, very black and white thinking, where the idea is, okay, I want the world to be here and I want to be uh, rise above it or be separate from it. So I think that some people have an idea that I could just love myself, that I don't need the world to tell me who I am. I can love myself. And therefore, as the cliche goes, therefore I can go and I love others, right? That's not true. You can't separate yourself from the world. So to answer your question, essentially what you need as best as you can, you collect as much data as you can. So what you're doing is you're asking, I mean, as I'm not saying overdo it, right? Don't ask, you know, every single person you see on the street, but like you're asking as many people as you possibly can who you are and what your talents are. So let's say if you're hypothetically, um, let's say you're a 16 or a 15 year old kid, you're in high school, let's say you want to try out for the basketball team and you're like, I don't know, 5-1 or something. And people around you tell you, hey, man, you know, chances of you making the team, let alone even the NBA are pretty slim. And let's say it's pretty much a consensus, you know, and there's a part of you that's saying like, oh, no, screw them. I'll show them. I'll show them that I can make the team. Okay. I mean, you could do that. And maybe there's some like very slim chance that you'll make it. I mean, obviously crazy things do happen once in a while, 
But I mean, if the general consensus is you're probably not going to be pretty good at basketball based on the competition around you, then you should probably not try out for the team. Or if you do, at the very least, you know, say something like, okay, you know, I, this is like a long shot and I don't have to feel defeated about so it. So I want to try something Shoot. here. Let's let's try this feedback thing. Mm-hmm. So, oh. uh, how, how, would, how would you rate me in terms of pride? In terms of oh, how much you feel it? Sure. In terms of do I do I exhibit excessive pride in my interactions with you or in the interactions you see I have? With Wait, you want the honest answer? Sure. You have too little pride. <laughs> there you go. Too little pride. What <laughs> makes you say that? So Alan is pretty modest. Like he's he's okay. So you're not modest in the sense of that I would think about it. That you can say, oh, okay. Um, all right, let me see. Okay, because I like, can I can take this. So. <laughs> no way. Actually, let me answer. Let me answer. So yeah. So Alan is modest and not in the sense of like that I think about it in the sense of like the kind of rational form of pride where you're able to say, okay, here are the things that I'm good at. Here are the things that I'm not good at. Alan is actually terrible at taking compliments. So when everybody, when anybody tells him that he's good at anything, he's like, oh, no, no, not me. I said, hey, I said, thank you. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, no, but, but it's true. Yeah, if somebody might offer me compliments, say I did a good job or this was excellent work or something like that. I usually, I like, I don't know. I just always compare myself to who I think is like the best of the best. And I think it's like, all right, however I did is, is okay. But there are clearly people who perform way beyond however sure. I perform. And so I just keep it kind of, I don't know. I try to be modest a little. I'm too know. modest. Yeah. How about between Gwen and I, Rudy? Like I'm in a really similar boat in that I spend my time reading the most intellectual people on the face of this planet that have, you know, have ever existed. And so I have a very difficult time accepting any kind of a compliment because I understand what greatness and genius is. I have a hard time with that. I don't know. Rudy, how about you? I have a very hard time accepting compliments. Except when somebody says you have great hair. Well, I mean, because that's, 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 <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's just obvious. It's, it's, well, it's a truth. You know, there's there's no subjectivity to that. I do have my hair. My hair is probably some of the best hair that's out there for (laughs) that. But besides the truth, no, in reality, I really have some problems accepting it. it makes me feel damn good. Like it all depends upon if. If I do something creative, like if I write a piece and somebody says, hey, I really like that. And they give me a couple of points about what they liked about it. And then they back it up. I'll be like, oh, okay. They really did read it. They understood it. But if I get like a general compliment or a general thing, it's like, oh, uh, I liked what you wrote. That doesn't mean anything to me. If you give me specific details uh, as to why, then I'll be accept of a compliment. I, I don't know if that makes any difference or any sense. Yeah. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Because if you think about it, I mean, people can just be nice and tell you that they like something about you. But if they take if they yeah, they can tell you why they like it. It becomes much more authentic or feels much more. It feels legitimate uh, if they actually cite the reasons why they're interested. Yeah. Yeah. I could say I like I like your work, but if you don't know why, maybe I'm just maybe that's just a throwaway statement or something. Right. It could be that you never read my work. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'll start from the assumption always, whenever I get a compliment, they're just being nice. And sometimes it's like, oh, thank you. But if I, if I really want to know why I will ask for details and Mm -hmm. when they can't give me any details that then I'm, then I'm proven right, that they're, that they're just being nice. I guess that makes me a real pain in the ass to compliment. So I suggest (laughs) nobody compliments me. Yeah, no, that actually makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I, something that I, uh, we had somebody on here who is like a time management coach who worked with women. And she said that women, I'm wondering 
if there's anything about gender that comes to your mind about this, but that women often credit their success to some sort of accident or things that happen, whereas men are more likely to take credit for something or be a little bit inflated. What are some gender dynamics and are they cultural or are they biological? Oh, wow. Okay. I wish I could answer that question. So this is a great question for an evolutionary psychologist. I'm sure David Buss could answer this question. I would say probably like anything else, it's most likely a mix of the two, because if I had to guess, I would say on average, probably just women are more sensitive by nature. And this is just on average. This doesn't obviously, I'm not saying every single woman is sensitive. Uh, So because that's the case, if that's the average, what we're saying is we're taking that and we're mixing it with the environment and the environment essentially, you know, kind of tells boys like, Hey, the world is your oyster. You could go do whatever you want. You're like the king. And then for girls, it's like, hey, you should be passive. You should be quiet. You should speak when spoken to. You should be deferential. So, I mean, the idea is, I think, at least, again, I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, but I would think that it's kind of a mixture of both. But yeah, culture plays a big part of it. And that's interesting. Yeah, so that's actually true. Women are, they're more likely to give credit to someone else as opposed to men who like, and if you think about it, it's so biased because like credit never really goes to one person specifically. Because if it's like a guy saying like, oh yeah, of course I did this all on my own. It's like, no dude, you had trainers, you had coaches, you had great teachers, whatever it is. And then for women, obviously, again, we're talking about averages. I mean, the idea is like, you're pretty fucking smart. Yeah. And just to tag that a bit. So, I mean, if I were speaking from personal experience, I mean, I actually find that I do, uh, if I had to really search uh, my, my feelings, like, I, yeah, I generally do give credit to people around me. My, like if, if let's say, it's, I would say it's a team effort. I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for my family, my friends, uh, people around me, but that might just come from, uh, so I read this book. I, I forget who was the author. I read this in my early twenties, like it's about 10 years ago or so. It's a book called tribal leadership, but essentially here's what I remember. There's like five stages to a tribe. One is the whole world sucks. Like there's this view of the world that everything sucks. And then there's another, there's a level above that where it's like, I'm amazing, but everybody else sucks. And then there's another one where it's like me and my group are amazing and everyone else still sucks. And then there's another one where I'm amazing. My group is amazing. And then also all these other teams are amazing, something like that. And there's like these different uh, mindsets or mentalities to how to sort of treat yourself and maybe others while in the, in a group context. I know, I, I don't think I actually named the five levels. I think I named four just <laughs> okay. now, but it, it was very interesting to me. And like, I remember reading things like that or other sort of material on maybe uh, how to be uh, maybe uh, successful, whether it be something in the self-help domain or maybe actually something a little more in the academic psychology, let's say domain. Maybe I'm just kind of biased or not biased. I just have that kind of leaning to maybe give credit to other people. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I could you know, say, speak for all men or all women yeah. as far as that goes. I'm with Leon. The reasoning is sound. I would love to see the research behind it. Yeah. And actually, I mean, again, yeah. that's why we're talking about averages. I mean, you ha- it's yeah. like if you're plotting like data, I mean, it's really all over the place. Yeah. So I, I forgot uh, we had a guest on before, I believe Christian Madsberg. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And so we talked about what was it? Interpreting uh, data. Interpreting data. Oh, man, I forgot what it was called. There was actually a term for it. Wow. The actual name of this book. Oh, sense making. Sense making. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Now, I know I could have just described sense making without saying sense making, mm-hmm. but it's such an important term, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And so, yeah, uh, sense making is incredibly important, especially when we're talking about all men, all women. It's important to be as critical as possible 
and really use all the data to sort of try to integrate and come up with some kind of reasonable answer. Because a lot of times maybe our answers come from limited variables, right? And there's so many variables that we can take into consideration when, you know, trying to consider, for example, how all men deal with a situation or how all women do. And so, yeah. And Christian would be the philosopher of data. That's what mm-hmm. we would call him. Yeah, he literally, so he wrote a book on how the humanities is kind of related to data and why it's necessary. I, I'm always suspicious when somebody wants to say all men are X or all women are X, because usually women don't end up on the, the top of the totem pole there. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of times true. it's in some, it depends on, it to me seems to reinforce a power structure where women aren't really full participants. But given, given all this, now what's come to my mind is I'm wondering, and especially since Rudy teases me that philosophy has no answers, <laughs> I'm wondering in <laughs> psychology, <laughs> Rudy made a face. Okay. In psychology, what is true? Is there something that is true despite culture, time? Is there something that is true? And the the answer is not Rudy is batshit crazy. That's that's my answer. Yeah. So So maybe before you do, because I I feel like you're the expert on this. So I'll just give my sort of um, intuition on it or not intuition, but this might approximate a truth. So I would say anytime we're maybe putting a label on something, like let's say this person is incredibly nice or this person is incredibly mean or whatever label you might put on a situation, a person or an event, there's always some element there in order for us to perceive that thing as good, bad, or whatever. There's always some kind of a projection going on because there's there's a sort of co-creation of meaning that happens when you decide to label something as whatever you decide to label it as. For instance, if I decide to say that Leon is a really good guy, really smart, good, dependable guy. This could be true, maybe, maybe objectively, like your hair, Rudy, like it's <laughs> it's amazing. And this could be objectively uh, true. Wait, <laughs> no, no. One correction. There's no could. My hair yeah, is I was just going to say perfect. he caught no it. Oh, no, no. no. That part, on. yes. But what I'm saying about him could be true, right? <laughs> sure. Um, I'm sure he's a good guy, but he's, but he, let's not equate that to how great my hair is, but go ahead. Fair. Okay. Fair. So, but the thing is, who knows if that's really true? I I could actually just be maybe projecting some quality that I'm seeing on him, but I don't know everything, uh, his every experience day to day. Maybe there's a point in the day where he's incredibly uh, mean to someone. Maybe he has an argument with uh, a friend or a family and maybe does something that may be subjectively or objectively deemed despicable. But because I have whatever experience I have of him, maybe I'm basing it, you know, I'm thinking that I'm basing on experiences I've had with him, but there's also an element of me maybe putting those qualities on him uh, and seeing that. Let me ask a question about that because I yeah. find that very interesting. And I, if you've listened to any of the shows, I'm a, I'm a big a student of film and, I'm a, and I like to write film and I like to act in film and I like to play villains. And what I'm deducing from what you're saying is every statement, every person, everything has a backstory. And whatever that backstory is, maybe that's the reason why they act the way they act. Or what you're saying is, no, my perception of them is also, is my own backstory being projected onto them. Is that another way of saying it, trying to tie it into, I don't know, film analysis? For sure. And actually having me creating some sort of a meaning in the act of perceiving what it is I believe I'm perceiving, and then maybe letting him know what it is that I'm perceiving. Uh, where now I'm like essentially helping to craft what direction our interaction goes just by my own interpretation 
situation and how I decide to label him. I don't know. What would you add anything to that? Or do you have maybe a different answer? So actually, I would piggyback off of that perfectly. So clinically speaking, the answer is yes and no. So there's only a provisional truth. So anytime that we're making diagnoses, we always keep in the back of our minds a high probability that we're wrong. So if you do like what's called an intake session with somebody, you're pretty much, let's say it's what, 45 minutes. So you're talking to them for a couple of minutes. You're asking them a bunch of standard questions and you're forming some sort of diagnosis, mostly for insurance purposes. So in the back of your mind, you're pretty much asking yourself, okay, what else do I actually need to know about this person? So most of the time people come in, uh, let's say, you know, they say something like, "Ah, I have a lot of anxiety. I'm really depressed. This is what's going on in my childhood, yada, yada. And you form some sort of diagnosis. And a lot of times what would happen is people sometimes even have more severe diagnoses. So you're telling yourself, okay, it could be depression, but then you find out that they have bipolar disorder. Um, It kind of sounds like generalized anxiety in the beginning. And then you find out they have post-traumatic stress disorder. So for us clinically, again, we always have just, it's always like it's sort of ingrained in us in school that all of your diagnoses are provisional. And the worst thing that you could do as a therapist is to be married to any one of them. Because once that happens, then what you're going to do is you're going to try to fit all of the data into your initial diagnosis because you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to come back and say, oh, I screwed this up. You know, sorry, I made a mistake, even though you're technically supposed to, because we can't gather enough information from one or even two sessions about a person. Mm-hmm. I, oh shoot. I just, I lost my thought. I had it. I lost it. Wait, Rudy, did you want to ask that? Gosh, darn it. Is this, is this what it is to get old? Uh, I forgot. I can relate. I was, we was, do this all the time. It was right this there. Is, this is what it, this is what it is to turn 26. Oh, I see. Wait, you know, no, wait, I remember. Hold we on. An, we can analyze Gwen's obsession with the fact that she, uh, that she's not the same age as me. I remember it was, it was from your, it was from your paper, Leon. I thought it was so interesting that there was this push in the eighties for everyone to have fantastic self-esteem thinking that that is what would make people better and grow up and be better. And actually it was the inverse that when people are working on their accomplishments and what they're great at, the self-esteem comes as a byproduct of that. The self-esteem can't be first. And so what I was thinking of when you were talking about being um, in your line of work, is there a trend right now in psychology or pop psychology that you find to be problematic or on the flip side, very, very helpful, very unique. And it's a new way of thinking about things. Oh, that's a great question. And by the way, so that uh, comment is actually, that's Roy Baumeister. So he was the one who actually said that. Um, he said that essentially it's, it's that self-esteem comes from your accomplishments as opposed to the other way around. Because the idea in the 80s was like, as long as you get to feel great about yourself, then you can go and start and, you know, doing all of these great things. I mean, technically it's bi-directional, but the idea is just because you have a great amount of self-esteem, again, going back to the basketball player example, you're not going to be a great basketball player just because you feel like you can do it. It's just, it's unfortunately not that simple. But as far as trends go, yeah, so there's a pretty, there's a really bad one. So I'm sure you've heard of the term gaslighting, as obviously a lot of people have. So um, everybody's diagnosed a narcissist. So by the way, this is a lot of what like my paper was trying to combat. So yeah, everybody's an armchair clinician and everybody for whatever reason just labels and hurls the kind of a label of narcissism around. So if you ask anybody who's gone through a breakup, who's had a bad marriage, who has a bad relationship with their parent, they're all narcissistic. So when people often um, like message me because they're like interested in therapy, they would say, oh, I'm a victim of narcissistic abuse. So, I mean, it's obviously possible that some of them are and definitely some of them are, but I highly doubt that like 90% of them are victims of narcissistic abuse. So what people usually mean when they think of gaslighting is they just mean that a conversation didn't go the way they wanted to. Uh, somebody didn't adequately empathize with them. 
Um, somebody, again, might have not abusive, but some of them might have just not heard them well, not really sort of responded to their needs, whatever it is. So there's a lot going on there. Usually when people say that they're being gaslit, what actually is happening is just, just a basic misunderstanding. But because someone is disagreeing with your version of reality, you're like, oh my God, stop gaslighting me. So yeah, so narcissism has become a huge trend, as I'm sure you've seen, especially like in pop culture, there's this idea that we're becoming more narcissistic. They're like, oh, social media is making us more narcissistic. Like, you know, entertainers are becoming more narcissistic or whatever. There's really no evidence to back that up. So we can say that maybe more people are being diagnosed with narcissism, just like with the question of autism. And some people are speculating, okay, there's just more diagnoses now as there were, you know, as compared to what there were before. I would say it's the same thing with narcissism. I don't necessarily think the numbers change. And I certainly don't think that social media is to blame. I certainly think that social media could bring that out of people who maybe already were narcissistic. Absolutely. But yeah, I think that that's a kind of misused term and an overly used term as the term is as the gaslighting term is as well. Question. Have any of you seen the movie or sorry, documentary, uh, Social Dilemma? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You don't think that that sort of that documentary sort of highlighted? How you got to remind me. What's the, what's the premise? Okay, so essentially people get in these echo chambers based on the things that they like sure. or the posts that they go on the internet. The algorithm, essentially the way it's set up is that it gives you more of those things that you like or generally view. And this algorithm maximizes for more time on the platform. I forgot the actual term, sure. but that's essentially what it does. And so it even might even give you something that uh, might cause you uh, some kind of emotional reaction just to get you to react as well and kind of, in a sense, get you in this echo chamber of the same kind of thinking. Like, let's say somebody who is, let's say politics. So if somebody's on the left side of the political spectrum, they're going to get more posts tailored towards things that are pro-leftist uh, views and very anti-right views. Maybe you'll have something that's pro-Joe Biden, pro-Kamala Harris, and then maybe something that's negative against Trump or Ron DeSantis. Right. Or you might have the inverse. If somebody's on the right side of the spectrum liking posts like that, you're going to get things that are pro you know, that side and then anti the other side as well. And then it can sort of feed into people having their own version of reality that they believe is true. And then maybe when they're exposed to somebody of a different level of thought, they might then think this person has an insane view of reality. Right. And then maybe that's where gaslighting may occur. Maybe somebody will say your view of reality is completely skewed. Right. They may be right. They may be wrong. I do agree with your reasoning that, you know, they're not clinicians. They don't know for a fact. It could be just a simple misunderstanding. I mean, if we just employed probably trying to, you know, uh, St. Francis of Assisi's uh, quote, you know, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Mm -hmm. Maybe that, you know, if people, more people did things like that, you know, there'd be less disagreements like, oh, why do you think the way that you do? Uh, okay. It's, and it's because of this, this, and this, I know I'm being general right now, the way I'm framing that, but then sometimes they'll hear you actually repeat back to them what you think they said. So instead of straw manning, like we might do in, uh, in law, right. Or, uh, in philosophy, we might do something called, and I think this is a newer term called steel manning, where you would essentially say what it is that you believe that they're saying, not try to misconstrue it. And then maybe they'll hear that you're providing their viewpoint to them in a sort of succinct way. They'll actually feel understood by you. It creates a little bit of rapport and they may open 
open up as well and then tell you why they believe what they believe. And then there's sort of this wash, rinse, repeat that could occur and then maybe lead to some kind of understanding. Right. But, Wait, so, yeah. Okay. And going back to the social dilemma, what was the question? Haha. <laughs> 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 so the whole point of me bringing up the social dilemma was just to sort of say, well, are, are you sure that like popularizing a term like gaslighting mm-hmm. is actually has a negative consequence? I mean, maybe, it, yeah, maybe, maybe it does. Wait, because I'm trying to figure out, were you asking that? Are you saying because um, there are like these political or uh, let's say whatever it is, um, virtual kind of like echo chambers, you're saying that it's possible that narcissism is that widespread. Is that it? Sure. Oh, yeah, okay. let's go with that. You okay. know why? Because I'm starting to okay. go <laughs> spiral so, down I, a little bit. I love that you brought up that documentary because it was making, I've wondered if, if that isn't contributing to the sense of if we're being pushed into a direction of showing our best selves, our edited selves, and that's what we're starting to think that we are because that's what we're seeing of other people. I'm wondering the same thing. What kind of an impact is social media having on our mental health? Right. So, I mean, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg question, but the thing is with narcissism, I mean, this is a specific personality disorder. So again, going back to the idea that it's been popularized as like a colloquial term, narcissism doesn't actually mean narcissistic personality disorder. When people say like, let's say if I say something like, I don't know, just to use you an example, even though he doesn't do this, uh, just to say like, oh, Alan is super narcissistic, right? What I would really mean is that like Alan's all over social media. He posts a bunch of selfies. Uh, I don't know, maybe he has like videos of himself on vacation or whatever. That's technically not narcissistic personality disorder. So what that is, is that you can say it's a narcissistic tendency, which is cool. And it is, I would agree with that. And fine, if that's what you mean, that, that makes sense. But it's like, if you're saying that he's narcissistic just because of those factors, I would say that's absolutely not true. So narcissistic personality disorder is a number one, it's a clinical disorder. And number two, it's only prevalent in about one to two, maybe even 3% of the population. So Mm. what this means, right, going back to the social dilemma is if you find like, let's say an echo chamber of people, I promise you, they're probably already narcissistic. So narcissistic people are very sort of prone to what's called confirmation bias. We were obviously talking about logical fallacies before. So because they're prone to they're prone to um, confirmation bias, what it is, is they find themselves in these echo chambers because they're not going to believe anybody else. So why you see such a like high correlation between, let's say, narcissistic personality disorder and conspiracy theories? No offense to everybody, but this is just what it is. Alex Jones was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And the reason why that is, is because these are the type of people to fall into these kind of places. So if you can kind of, let's say, if you can become master in this particular field, if you're already prone to paranoia, if you're prone to confirmation bias, you already have a significant mistrust of authority. Ha ha, narcissistic symptoms. You're going to find yourself in these echo chambers, right? Where people are going to not only sort of validate you, but if you're like a master at what what you do and what you know, they're going to make you a god. And these people love it. So when you go on the internet and you type in a bunch of stuff about like, hey, I know about like this conspiracy that happened. Here's all of the information. People are literally going to worship you on it. So, I mean, again, yeah, it's still a bit of a chicken or the egg question, but I do think it's bi-directional, but I do think also that narcissism comes first. It's like, if we, um, if we had to try to fit an environment to a personality, I would say this environment perfectly fits people who are already narcissistic as opposed to them becoming so. But I'm sure, again, you know, these are all averages. I'm pretty sure there are some people who find themselves in these environments and then it sort of contributes to it. But honestly, man, at that point, I would say there's probably already uh, pretty significant narcissistic tendencies before they find their way virtually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, one of our most popular episodes touches upon this, not necessarily in a, a discussion of narcissism or gaslighting, but where we talked about social epistemology arguments in the internet. Do you remember, Gwen? I've heard from several people that they loved our discussion on that because I think everybody is living in their own social dilemma. Either they are or their family members are. They've got 
a parent or they've got an aunt or an uncle that is literally stuck inside of an echo chamber of Facebook and they're worried about them uh, for whatever reasons, whether that be on the right or the left. And I think that that, look, social media touched upon it a little bit. There's certainly some very bad things about it. There are some very good things about it. It's here to stay, right? And to just label everybody that posts, oh, they're all narcissistic. That's that's ridiculous. You know, I, I mean, that that's just not the way to, to handle it. I mean, I think Gwen and I are, are parents of very young children, and we're always trying to get advice right? Especially, I mean, you guys are from, you know, psychologists and everything. We always are looking for good advice as to how do we raise our children to use social media responsibly and to think about the ramifications of everything. It just seems to be like a constant theme on our show. So I'm just curious, do you guys as psychologists or, or, or on your podcast, do you hear from parents that say, hey, look, like social media is here to stay. How do we address this with our parents? And what do you guys tell them? Oh, wow. Great question. I don't think we've ever covered that. So I mean, um, I can't think of anyone. We talked about neurotypical children, but not really in the in no, the not social, not social, social media. media. Yeah, we. Yeah. If if I had to think about where I've, I mean, I've heard this conversation had before too. I actually don't know his background, but there is is a famous. His name is Daniel Schmachtenberger. He also talks about sense making and sort of how to combat the algorithm, so to speak. Okay. Right. So for instance, so in the context of children, I feel like this is going to sound a little bit complicated how to sort of manage this, but let's try. What he suggested is if you're somebody who does not want to be in an echo chamber and who wants to have access to all sorts of information, whether it be the right, the left, whether uh, it not just be puppy videos or just videos exclusively on science or exclusively on math or you name it. I'm just naming random subjects here. Essentially, the way to combat that is to actually try to look at and seek different posts. Let's say if this is in a political context, and um, I'm somebody who's more, I would say, politically sort of uh, left-leaning. But if I wanted to understand why my friends who are, some of them may lean on the right, I might actually check out what it is that they're watching, whether it be, I don't know, uh, Ben Shapiro or uh, Candace Owens, Jordan, uh, although I'm not, I'm not sure where Jordan Peterson falls exactly. Oh, he's Jordan super Peterson. right-wing. Okay, so Jordan Peterson. It's <laughs> not even a question. Yeah, there you Go, yeah. you know like people like that you know or or whatever was called the like intellectual uh dark web like all the people there like a sam harris or whatever like i, I would check out all these different sort of people that are sort of put on a pedestal and whether it's on the right or on the left what's his name eric weinstein and all these different and not just those people but in general listen also to cnn listen a little bit to see what they're saying on fox see what they're saying here see what they're saying there. Yeah, you're collecting data essentially yeah <laughs> and then what no yeah 100 percent. and then so say you did that on social media and you like all those different things apparently this gentleman daniel schmachtenberger he suggests that essentially you go to these different posts you you like them you watch them and then your feed will actually as by the way it sounds very straightforward and maybe like maybe intuitively sounds like it makes sense, but then you'll actually get a wide array of videos that show different perspectives. So this way you can get access to different levels of thinking and then maybe ideally, ideally be able to integrate all those different pieces of information. If, you know, I guess in the context of a child, maybe you're trying to instill in them this uh, sense of maybe trying to seek what is true, right? Not just what the group is thinking is true, whatever that group may be, but maybe what's actually true. And so by having that 
sort of tendency to seek the truth, you can look at all these different things and try to find out what might actually approximate a objective versus a subjective opinion as far as, let's say, politically goes. This could work other ways too. Maybe somebody might be more inclined towards spirituality and sort of the uh, new agey sort of bits of material. Nothing wrong with that. It's very cool. There's also people who are more uh, maybe they value data and things that are empirical and science as a whole. And that's incredibly a hundred percent, a valid way to look at. In fact, if not the most valid way to sort of try to suss out what makes sense in reality by, you know, having empirical evidence and research and things to support that. Maybe somebody would benefit from looking at both of those things. Maybe, you know, delve a little bit into that world of uh, delu- not delusion, but <laughs> I love it. Freudian slip. Yeah. I love that you said Jordan Peterson. I remember I read his book, um, something like the 12. Well, I don't know. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 12 rules for life. Yeah. Um, and I read it and I think some people were surprised that I read it. And I was like, well, yes, this person is a lot of people are talking about him. I want to know what in the world that they're talking about. And some of it I liked. Some of it I liked. Some of it I thought, okay, this isn't bad, concrete advice. I didn't feel that way about all of it, but I think that that's important to just go ahead and see, okay, wait a minute, what is this about? What is going on without just being on the attack mode? And I understand his appeal as a result now of reading his book. Sometimes when you read somebody who thinks differently than you, it can challenge you to try to understand why you think the way that you do. Like that there's reading his stuff, I realized, okay, there's a difference between misogyny and sexism. I think he's a sexist. I don't think he's a misogynist. And I can point to some passages and where I think that I can make that distinction. Had I not read his work, I would not be able to come to that conclusion for my own way in which I analyze things. I didn't even realize that I had that kind of a distinction in my head. So I'm all for that. Because one of the dangers is I know somebody, this is on Facebook, kind of somebody I kind of sort of know, you know, Facebook acquaintance type thing. And they post a lot of right wing stuff. And every once in a while, you know, it shows up on my feed and I don't mind seeing it because I kind of want to know what people are thinking because it won't show up in my regular stuff. But this person posted about the January 6th hearings you know, that this is being overblown, no one died. And I thought, oh, okay, this is different from just a political leaning now. Now somebody is so absorbed in one media culture that that fact that in fact people did die and people died afterwards from injuries is not even resonating with the person. And that's one of the things I think is problematic about this echo chamber is that it's not a matter of just listening to people that you agree with. It's a matter of really not having an understanding of events. Yeah. So that thing that we were talking about a little bit earlier about seeking first to understand then to be understood. See, I feel like not even I feel I've actually seen this work in my own experience. Like I I have a friend of mine, one of my best friends who is a very, um, heavy leaning in like basically on the right, essentially. And sometimes he would espouse certain things like not necessarily what you said about that acquaintance who maybe posted about uh, January 6th about somebody, nobody dying at all. Mm -hmm. But there were things like, I wish I could cite it for you right now, but there were things like that. I would hear him say, and then I'm thinking, oh man, to be so... I should say like, so in this sort of world of delusion, right. That you buy into something that's not even like a fact at all. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Or, so the thing is, what I would do then is I would try to look at the pieces of information he would look at and try to then say to him what I understand that he's getting, but then try to then after establishing, you know, that rapport that I'm not calling him crazy, I'm not going to gaslight him or anything like that. Then I can sort of start to work in those things that that maybe I'm seeing that may or may not be true as well, because he'll, he'll get me back as well. Because the thing is, like, especially when you start to build rapport with somebody and you try to do this secret first to understand than to be understood thing, they're going to do it back to you as, as well. And maybe try to get, you know, pull you maybe to their side. But what I found is after speaking to him a lot, at least started to understand why he felt the way he felt or why he thought the way he thought. And then it actually took away, it, like it, it didn't distract anymore from our friendship. There was mm -hmm. a point where like people's political views became I don't know. Uh, there was a time we didn't really know people's political views, right? As not as well as as we know now, uh, based on their social media posts. So because that erupted at some point, or, I can't or, really. Or, uh, or if they wear a red hat or not, right? That, that's <laughs> in a, just throw just throwing that out there. Just throwing that out there. I'm not. Yeah, I, I not refer good, to a, yeah. a, a a red hat. That's all. I I didn't say anything. I just said a red hat. Sure, but yeah, that friend that I'm talking about, yeah, was totally into the red hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. No joke. Yeah. It was kind of rough because especially like we, we live in uh, New York, so we're mostly kind of liberal here. Right. So, of course, we have a bias as well. But the thing is, when we saw that, that stuck out like a red thumb to us. Uh, right. And and so it was uh, hard not to ignore. But then some of my friends, they weren't able to have a conversation anymore uh, with this person I'm talking about. They would actually let that distract from their core relationship with them. They let it like whatever you believe have something to do with how good of a person this person might be or how, that, how they might treat you or how much respect they give you or compassion or something like that. And so I started to see that and I just wanted to see like, okay, how can we solve this? And I did find, you know, trying to see why they're thinking what they're thinking, say why I'm thinking what I'm thinking. We do this back and forth. It actually did do something for our relationship as far as that goes. Did it necessarily change his worldview or his philosophy or his political leanings? Not exactly, but at least he understood why I thought the way I did. And I understood why he thought the way he did. And there wasn't this tension that kept us from still being friends or able to continue having a relationship, which some people might experience an issue with. Yeah. And what's great about that is that if I understand correctly, the way that you yeah. handled it was that you did it outside of social media. It sounds like you had a conversation, a face-to-face -face yeah. conversation or a Zoom conversation. What drives me crazy is people trying to change somebody else's political view via Facebook or via Instagram or via Twitter. And I'm like, there is no way you're going to have a calm conversation one-on-one -on -one where you're going to really understand where somebody's coming from on social media. The way that you approached it was is fantastic. Like if you have an issue with somebody and you really care about this person and you don't just want to cut them off because they're batshit crazy, et cetera, et cetera, because they're too liberal or they're too right or whatever, sit down with them and have a conversation with them and see if you can at least talk civilly face to face because it's much different it's much different having a conversation even over a phone call 
where mm-hmm. somebody can just hang up on somebody. Having a conversation face to face, I feel like really brings civility automatically. So that's good advice. I mean, I, I like how you handle it. For sure. And I, I could see so many problems with doing it online too, especially if it's on a public post where other people may then add to the conversation. It can create all these different threads. What I'm doing with my fingers here is trying to sort of create like these different branches of where like conversational pathways and it becomes too distract. It could even lead to somebody saying something inflammatory and then away from you being able to even address the root of whatever the issue is. Somebody might have that already have said something counter to what you said. And I don't know, you could be just directing your comment at somebody's specific post meant for the specific person. And then all these different opinions and all that could distract from trying to focus in on reaching some kind of civil solution or civil uh, just understanding. I want to ask, I mean, all of this talk about all, all of this, all of this discussion about these applications of psychology in our relationships and our friendships and understanding things. I would love to know, I mean, I know that philosophy has informed the way in which the podcast is set up and Rudy also with his legal background is able to bring so much to the table. So I want to know with your podcasting experience, what is it that you are, what is the, what is it that you're bringing to the table with the psychology background? And then what have you learned through podcasting? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, okay. So in terms of what we actually, what we hope to accomplish with it. Okay. So both philosophy and psychology, kind of piece this together. So with uh, with psychology, obviously, a lot of people can't afford therapy, nor do they necessarily even want therapy. Um, and then, you know, with philosophy, I mean, the idea is unless you're a college kid, I mean, you're not necessarily going to take any courses and then you're probably not even going to look to it on your own. Right. It's, it's like, it's not a Rudy um, <laughs> Yeah. And also, but people are terrified of it, by the way. So people are terrified of both. They're both terrified of philosophy and psychology. First of all, they're terrified of knowing themselves. And then they're also terrified of misunderstanding, you know, these great sort of tomes of these geniuses that to a lot of people just don't necessarily make sense. So, I mean, fundamentally, what we're doing is we're trying to bring it to a larger audience. So I love, and I'm sure Alan would agree, I love the concept of public philosophy. And so the best that we're trying to do is we're trying to bring it to sort of a you know, wider audience and a wider group of people. Because what I find is that a lot of the material is easily digestible, especially the material that's pretty much written for a mass, like for mass consumption. And so a lot of times what happens is when authors come on, I think they get the sense of like, oh, well, you know, who's really going to be interested in, outs- interested in this outside of this specific field? And so what you find is that a lot of our shows, they do reasonably well with people who don't already have the interest to begin with. So they learn about new ideas. Obviously, you know, they kind of see that they could use them and they're applicable. So a lot of times when people think of philosophy, they think of it as this armchair field where it's a bunch of people trying to kind of solve unsolvable mysteries. Not necessarily true, because if you think about stoicism, which is the foundation of CBT, and then you even think about existentialism, a lot of these ideas obviously are used in terms of death anxiety, cultivating meaning in life, cultivating a sense of freedom, taking responsibility for yourself, making sense of the fact that you're ultimately isolated, etc. So all of these ideas are applicable, but I think that a lot of people run away from them because A, they're either afraid of them or they're afraid of themselves. And we just kind of showed through our guests that they don't have to be, that not only are these ideas accessible to you, they're also pretty freaking useful. I'm wondering if people like psychology sometimes to analyze other people except themselves. Yeah, sometimes yeah. they do. So we can identify, it's just so much easier to identify somebody else's problems in your own. Oh yeah. I love playing armchair psychologist. (laughs) I mean, I, I, I mostly just do it to myself and, you know, maybe to my wife, you know, since we have the husband wife privilege, but uh, come on, that's, that's as about as American as things can get. It's like watching football on Sunday. Armchair psychologist is super fun, but armchair armchair philosopher. I'm sorry, guys. The uh, just, it's not, it's just not going to happen. Armchair philosophy. (laughs) You know, what's great about psychology is, is you could say, oh no, that person, 
they are crazy or that person, they are this or that person, they are that. You start throwing around philosophical things. You got no answers. That person thinks this, that, or the other thing. So I like the armchair psychology. Are you open to a counter to that? Sure. Okay. So the thing that I think that fu fundamentally philosophy does for all of us is it helps us see that all of us together are just equally as scared, as ignorant as each other. And there's a sort of sense of comfort in that. Oh, I, I, I'm the first to admit I am mm -hmm. psychotically fearful of death. I mean, mm -hmm. I plan on not dying and I'm going to figure <laughs> out a way to do that. And that's a theme in this show about getting my ass transferred to a computer. And it's all... All of my problems, and I have a lot of them, if you listen to the shows, come from my fear of death. So it was very interesting when you're saying about stoicism being the foundation for CBT and existentialism being one of the foundations of dealing with, with death issues and everything. That's all well and good, but I, I just don't plan on dying. So I just don't accept it, just move forward. That's my point. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, one of our favorite guests, um, he was his name is Sheldon Solomon. He is like the king of death psychology, what I would call it death psychology. So him and uh, Tom Prasinski, they actually created terror management theory. And the idea is essentially is there's this worm at the core of everything. And so both he and Tom actually argued that cultivate that cultivating uh, founding everything or at the base of everything is a death anxiety. So he would pretty yes. much connect. Yeah, he would connect oh, every, every, every mental health issue. He would fundamentally connect it to death. So I don't know if it's at the core. I don't necessarily think I'd agree with him, but I definitely do think it's a strong part of it. And by the way, and this is something I really love talking about is that if you think about even narcissism, narcissism may not, again, not mean this may not be like a core issue, but it's one of the core issues that fundamentally narcissism is in a way a mask for death anxiety. So I can tell you whenever I feel the most terrified of death, whether let's say, I don't know, it's like some hypochondriac episode, or I'm afraid to go to the doctor or whatever, all of a sudden I find myself building myself up where I'm telling myself, oh, here are all these great things that you did. And here are all these great things that you're going to do. And there's so much to look forward to or whatever, right? Which is essentially narcissistic because none of it is amazing. I mean, it's cool, but it's not amazing. But that's, I think narcissism is a mask for death anxiety, at least partially. You know what yeah, we just, you know what's great about this? This is a great way to end the show. Gwen, do you know what we just, we did this whole episode, I, I just tricked these guys. Did you get into, analyzed? Into analyzing <laughs> me. And they just called me a narcissist. Awesome. Perfect. That, that is and, that's great. It's a great way to end I'm the just going to assume that since I have no death, anxiety, or fear, that I am perfectly normal. Awesome. I'm not crazy. I think, oh, yeah. When I think of perfectly normal, I think of you 100%. <laughs> That was sarcastic, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Leon Allen, thank you so much. We're gonna link your show in the show notes. I'm just, I don't know, I'm really excited. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a great Thank you so much for having us on. Absolutely, yeah, thank you Thanks, so much guys. for having us. Good is in the details. It's produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. And if you would like to support the show, find us at patreon.com slash details. Also, be sure to check out our show notes so that you can link up to Seize the Moment Podcast. You can also find us on Instagram, Pod, and Facebook. If you would like to sponsor a show or if you have any questions, you can email us, goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. And a special shout-out to valoriawear.com if you're interested in sunglasses, in necklaces, and rings. Use offer code Gwendolyn, that's all caps, for 50% off your first order. And I will also link that in the show notes. Okay, until next time. Bye.